Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have an incredible conversation for you today with Ken Burns. Ken has been making documentary films for over 40 years. Since the Academy Award-nominated Brooklyn Bridge in 1981, he's directed and produced some of the most acclaimed historical documentaries ever made, including The Civil War, Baseball, Jazz, The War, The National Parks, America's Best Idea, Prohibition, The Roosevelts, An Intimate History, The Vietnam War, Country Music, and most recently, The U.S. and the Holocaust. His future film projects include The American Buffalo, Leonardo da Vinci, The American Revolution, Emancipation to Exodus, and LBJ and the Great Society, among others. Ken's films have been honored with dozens of major awards, including 16 Emmy Awards, two Grammy Awards, and two Oscar nominations. In September 2008, at the News and Documentary Emmy Awards, Ken was honored by the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences with a Lifetime Achievement Award. In November of 2022, Ken was inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame. Ken, welcome into the back room. Thank you, Andy. It's good to be with you. So before we get into your very illustrious life and career, I know you are someone who's engaged with the world and what goes on in it. And so there's a few things that are happening in America today that I wanted to ask you about. As, and in particular, as someone who's made films about social injustice and racial injustice, criminal injustice, in particular, like the Central Park Five, about the five black teenagers in New York City in the 80s, wrongfully accused of a heinous crime. What do you make of what we've just witnessed in Tennessee? It's scary. There's so many things that seem to be the canary in the coal mine lately, uh, where the movement towards and the sort of seemingly broad scale acceptance of authoritarian actions uh, are happening over and over again. And I think you see it in the world, you see it in our politics in particular, and you see the overreach too. You see the ways in which people come back. I don't think this is positive except for, as I used to say, I was saying, no Justins, no peace. I think the two Justins are back. And so that's good news for them. It's good news for their constituents. It's good news for the state of Tennessee, but they've got an opposing party with a supermajority that can do these sorts of tricks. I think one of them had pointed out that there was a sitting speaker of the house who'd been under investigations for horrible things. One member had been abused of sexual, uh, been accused of sexual abuse. Another had urinated in, in a chair, but that was not removable offense. It was only their coming and speaking about the tragedy of gun violence. But it's interesting. It will probably go nowhere, but the governor, Bill Lee, has apparently indicated a willingness to begin to talk about Tennessee is one of the states with the sort of least re restrictions to talk about some kind of common sense thing. The sad thing is, as being somebody who's made films about American history, you're sort of comforted in one sense by all this stuff has happened before, all of this kind of bad stuff, good stuff, whatever's happened before. But it used to be that the Republican and Democratic Party sort of agreed, you know, through the middle part of the 20th century on stuff. You agreed on people shouldn't have machine guns. You agreed that they shouldn't have semi-automatic, right? You kind of agreed. And then somewhere along the line, our politics really began to sort of skewer. Vietnam was a contributor to it. Not that it hadn't done that before, and it hasn't. I can go back to all the antecedents. You know, then, then in the 1980s, government became the enemy itself. And that had not really happened in quite the way 
that it had before, the the doctrine that allowed you to require that an opposing view point be added, helped to moderate uh, the kind of kookiness, the explosion of cable, and then the explosion of the internet. The loss of the Soviet Union gave the Republican Party the lack of a traditional enemy mm -hmm. uh, to fight. And so they turned to Bill Clinton and made him and his wife the enemy, and then made the Democrats. And then that got exploded. So the QAnon, you know, what happens that I've learned in, in my, you know, 50 years of practicing filmmaking in telling stories in American history is that I make films about the U.S., but I make films about us. Mm -hmm. That's to say the two-letter, lowercase, plural pronoun, all of the intimacy of us and we and our and all of the majesty and the complexity and the contradiction and even the controversy of the United States. And what I've learned, if I've learned anything, is that there's only us. There's no them. Mm -hmm. And that get into trouble when we make a them, when we other somebody. That's where anti-Semitism and racism and xenophobia and all sorts of um, toxic brews that beset not just the people of the United States, but human beings in general. And that my feeling is that when you see somebody uh, making a them, just run away. And you'd be surprised. I think because it, in our media culture, anything that bleeds, it leads. We, we tend to over worry about it, but we're definitely in the fourth great crisis. You know, the civil war, the depression, the, the second world war, this one, which was a combination of uh, Trump, COVID, George Floyd, all of these sorts of things mixed in together have given us this kind of, you know, real reckoning. And this is the first time in which you've really got questions about free and fair elections, peaceful transfer of power, independence of the judiciary. I mean, you could argue back and forth that when the Dred Scott came down, decision came down that helped to precipitate the civil war, that was, you know, there was no independent judiciary. There was just a chief justice, Roger Tawney, who was just promoting the interests of the slave holding oligarchy that controlled the United States and was worried about losing that control. Mm -hmm. And so as Western states were added, the delicate equilibrium in which the Southerners had dominated both Congress and the White House was beginning to change. And there was that increased desperation. You feel it now that demographically the Republicans understand the problem they're in. And so it's, you know, anything goes. And what goes is a kind of flirtation, more than that, uh, a kind of exercise of authoritarian stuff that ought to be disturbing to every person, mm -hmm. and Republican, Democrat, independent. And you're right. Racism has existed for forever, and we've seen some horrible things in this country. I got to say, I was watching what happened in that state house. I was shocked at the blatancy of it, like how shameless and was like, no, the two black guys got to go. The white lady stays. It was like years ago in the 50s, in the 60s, the Klansmen would go out into the fields at night in the middle of nowhere and they would put their robes and hoods on and burn the cross. And then the next day they'd go back to work and, you know, pretty much assume their uh, incognito lives. But it felt like <clears throat> that night in that state house that they were there and they took the robes off and they took the hoods off, but they didn't really care about being incognito. It was just like, we're racist. The White Citizens Council in the early 60s used to ship black people up north. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? I mean, 
don't be shocked. I mean, this has been going on. The state you, of, you weren't uh, shocked to see like the level of blatant outward racism on look, national look, look, TV. I have, I have I have centered race in nearly every single one of the films because you can't do a deep dive in American history without mm. touching race. And I've taken for decades lots and lots of criticism from colleagues, from friends, from uh, even critics, mm. even some scholars. You know, like stop centering race. And I. You know, when when Barack Obama was ele elected and inaugurated, they said, now will you shut up? And I, I just <laughs> held up the Onion magazine, which said, you know, January 20th, 2009, black man given worst job in nation. <laughs> I said, yeah. Just watch what happens. I am not surprised. And I'll tell you why. You go back to the state just below Tennessee, Alabama. They decided a few years ago to uh, strengthen voter registration. They know the demographic worries that they have. So they make it important to have a driver's license before you can vote, right? They then go and close down the DMV in that big, huge swath of black uh, black counties that are majority black counties. Just blatantly pulled it out. You know, what, what happened, I think, with the Justins is that it was so obvious. And I mean, they, they're arguing, saying, look, the white woman didn't do a bullhorn and that violates our thing, but neither did any of them pee in the seats of a member or be accused of sexual abuse. They're both, they're all incredibly thoughtful, all three of them, incredibly thoughtful you know, politicians and, and, and represent a kind of new generation. So, you know, these things kind of backfire with unintended consequences as well. And I think the last election was about that, uh, the midterms, I think also the previous election, you know, we, we wring our hands, oh, it's getting bad, but you know, the victor won by 7 million votes, the biggest amount in the history of the United States, the greatest participation. So I think the answer is always civic engagement. And sometimes that's not sexy enough to get our attention. Mm -hmm. So what gets our attention is all the bad stuff. And we also forget that some of those folks that are willing to stand by and let that happen, or even be cheerleaders to let that happen are all, you know, the folks who took their their boats and saved black and brown people in Houston and other places during mm -hmm. floods over the last several years. And so there is, I, I always want to mix it, mix it up and, and just sort of say that sometimes the statistical stuff doesn't do as well as the stories. And I think why you're drawn to the Justins is just a fantastic story. And and what's important about it is that they're both back at work today. Yes. And it's, it's a fantastic story because, <clears throat> to use your word, it was an epic backfire. The, the ROI was zero, and they made nationally prominent rock stars out of these two young men. It's almost like some karmic thing happened that was yeah. meant to be that they had to go through the shit in order to get to where they are now. And now they're back in the state house, but elevated to a place that is one billion times greater than they probably ever could and, have imagined. And look at the overreach with abortion, right? You have all these justices trotting mm -hmm. before the Senate committees. Oh, no, 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 this is established law. And then the second they have a chance, they release it. And then you have an, a, a judge who is using the radical language, not of, a, of law, which can be itself radical, but of the anti-abortion movement to ban a pill that's been right. in use for more than two decades. And so- you, you begin to realize that the audience for this isn't you and me, Andy. It is not the superstardom of the Justins that can also still threaten people. It's the fact that 
there are people out there that are moderate, that are independent, that are turned off by the overreach that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And that all I think our job to do is not to argue as much as it is to tell stories about what's going on. And, and it becomes very clear. We know that we were born under this, you know, incredible hypocrisy of slavery. The guy who wrote our catechism owned hundreds of human beings and didn't see the contradiction of the hypocrisy. But they were experimenting for the first time in human history with this idea that people could govern themselves. It's mm -hmm. radical. It's still radical. It's very hard. And at one point, Jefferson says in the Declaration, you know, that that human beings are, man, mankind is, to, is to, disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable. I think that's it. So several sentences beyond the, what mm -hmm. we focus on and before the list of complaints against the king. And what he's saying is that this new business is going to take a lot of effort and a lot of like conscious civic attention in the boring kind of way that it does. You're just going to have, you want that car to look shiny, you're going to have to wash it and polish it, wax it, do all of this sort of stuff. And that's the hard work of democracy. And I think that what these stories, these moments happen, remind us of the fragility of it. You know, we just, our last film was on the U.S. and the Holocaust, right? If you wanted to go to the best place, the hippest, most alive place on earth in 1932, it would be Berlin, right? It's like in music, mm -hmm. right? In, in, in painting, in cinema, in architecture, Bauhaus, you know, in ideas and just kind of the, the, the society, the energy. The next year, not so much. So you begin to see, and we felt strongly and powerfully and with great trepidation, the, the fragility of the institutions that we take for granted. And I think some of these stories, the Justins in Tennessee, the Texas judge, the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas's, you know, uh, just expense account, uh, you know, the Alabama DMVs. All of these are stories that remind people, not just you and me, to do the right thing. To just, just let's, let's get back to a kind of centering that takes place in which people can agree to get things done. I mean, what is not news, you know, which I am just so stunned about, is that the current administration's legislative accomplishments are the third greatest in the last 100 years. That is to say, FDR owns the record by far. His protege, Lyndon Johnson, has the second best. Joe Biden has the third. And you just kind of go, why isn't that news? Why do, do you not know about this? And why is his approval rating like? And why is his approval rating? Because if you say it long enough, right? Government is bad. This guy is old. This guy can't do things. This guy took a 10 hour. I mean, he took a, it's not the Acela from, from, from Washington to Wilmington. He took a 10 hour train thing from, from Poland to Kiev and, and walked through the street to great, it reminded me of FDR and in Yalta with Stalin and, and he couldn't walk. Stalin and Churchill. And guess where Yalta is? In Crimea. Mm -hmm. And guess where Crimea is? In what was the Ukraine is mm -hmm. now occupied by Russians. So, you know, to people who sort of are in this storytelling business in, in history, you kind of, you realize that Mark Twain is right. History never repeats itself, but it rhymes. Mm -hmm. You know, and the rhymes are so perplexing. They're so exciting. They're enervating. They're anxiety producing. And they 
you know, human nature doesn't change. You know, mm -hmm. there was, you know, every film that I've worked on, I'm working on stuff in the 18th century now. There are people just like us, you know. There's one of the reasons why the anti-parliament sentiment in the United States kept up, particularly in New England, is because they had a whole set of what we'd call other media that was all grievance. Samuel Adams was the greatest grievance. He said, if you just keep people upset, right, enough, which is why you don't hear about Joe Biden, why the popularity is stuff. But, you know, who are you going to trust with your teenage daughter, right? The other guy? I've always said no. that. I said, look, yeah. you, is, even the MAGA is like, if you need a babysitter thing. for your 12-year-old you girl, a babysitter, are you I, getting you know, Trump or Biden? Yeah, right. You're getting Biden, Uncle Joe. He's Joe. like Grandpa Joe. Look, come on. But then they, they're very good at trying to portray Joe as the guy who like whispers in the late women's ears or touches their shoulders. Like he's the pervert, not the guy who actually admitted to grabbing pussies. Not that yes. guy, but the guy who has absolutely no one accusing him of anything. Right. That, yeah, no. but that's where we live today. That's where we live. And in which the shamelessness of the, the of of people who are not doing their job complaining about people who are doing their job is is where we get into the kinds of uh, sort of shit that we're in. You know, we're knee deep in, in some stuff. And I think it, it also makes people, because they're so accustomed to the divisions, convinced that there are. And there are, but I think we're also, uh, we exaggerate it because we're only in a kind of binary circumstance, you know, mm -hmm. where everything is ones and zeros. Everything is red state or yeah. Blue state. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that there was a time where we used to be able to agree on certain things. And with the advent of tribalism ushered in by Trump and, and Fox News and the Tucker Carlson's and the conspiracy theories and the Joe Biden is a pervert and Democrats eat babies in the basement of a pizza place. Like when that all came to be, it seems like as a society, we've lost the ability to come together in the middle where it matters. Like we should not like Russia. We should support Ukraine. We should defend our borders against enemies. Like we, we can't have those conversations anymore. We don't agree on anything anymore well, because, you know, well, I'm is... not sure. I think we're told that we don't agree. You know, if you, you know, their, their Fox News is very popular, but it represents like a tiny, tiny fraction of people who are watching TV at any moment. And so I think that these things get exaggerated when those of us who are interested in it uh, do. I think more, there's more sort of, I live in rural New Hampshire. So I, I, just, I just see the way in which people do get along and do figure out ways to negotiate that. And I, I, I think that's true. It's always so interesting to me how often people vote against their own self-interest. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that the people who are most frightened of other people are the people who do not have the experience of it. That is to say, the most diverse places on earth, like Brooklyn and Queens, are the places that are most supportive of the aspirations of the people for whom the, they, the minorities or the recent immigrants represent threats to people who do not see them. So what happens is that you've got an intermediate storyteller who's telling you lies, period, pure and simple. And so you just have to be fact-based and then stuff gets a little bit, you know, easier to pull out. Well, you've, you've said the Republican Party is the party of white supremacy. 
which I think hits the nail on the head because to me, it's all about racism today. It's what divides and makes people go against their own self-interest because when they're thinking about feeding their kids and they're thinking about paying for school and somebody comes along and goes, oh yeah, but we're getting replaced, white people. Oh yeah, yeah, I won't care about that other stuff. Well, it's not too long ago that the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And even spun off in the 48 election with the Dixiecrats and, and Strom Thurmond. And what was interesting in another one of those unintended consequences, the Southern strategy, which was to play up the fact that these new civil rights laws didn't appeal to you was to switch it over. And so I'd rather than isolate that, I mean, I I just think what's more egregious would be the former president talking day before yesterday on the air and praising Kim Jong-un and Xi and Putin and denigrating us. And it used to be, you know, any differences stopped at the border. Mm -hmm. And yet you have someone who is literally, he you know, it's, it's, it's almost like he wants their power to not have to be responsible to the democratic process, to be able to do what you want. And they, all of the three people that he mentioned and lauded are people who can get rid of anybody who disagrees with them and do regularly. Well, that's his regularly. fantasy. And that's his fantasy is to have that kind of absolute power, but that's not the American fantasy. The American fantasy is the city on the hill that Ronald Reagan, a Republican, a Republican who, by the way, we have to say in 1980, started his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, Choctaw County, did not say I'm here because of Cheney, Goodwin and Shermer, three civil rights workers who were murdered there, mm-hmm. but I'm there to talk about states' rights. And he mm-hmm. mentioned states' rights in the first few paragraphs of his opening speech. This is the first speech post-Labor Day in the traditional time where nobody campaigned except for the nomination until after Labor Day or until the Labor Day weekend. And then the campaign formally began. That's where he began it. And he chose to do it, which is a way of cementing to what used to be the solidly Democratic South. This was adhering to white supremacy. So the Republican Party is not white supremacist. I don't know where that quote came from. It has now been the home for white supremacists and the replacement theory that's been around since the late 19th century, the worry that this new influx of immigrants, Catholics, Jews, Others were going to dilute the Protestant stock uh, that had made America. And it's crazy because uh, Pete Hamill said in a film he made on, on Prohibition that the immigrants brought a kind of, made the United States an alloy that was stronger than any of its constituent parts. Mm. And that's, that's always been true. Eleanor Roosevelt echoed that a decade later in the 30s, just saying, oh my God, we have been improved a thousandfold by the addition of people of diverse backgrounds and faiths and whatever. And so there's still a good story happening out there. It just doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And the stories that we tell have to include, to be honest, Mm -hmm. those facts that are often dark as we've been discussing, but also, you know, 1993, I think it was in Billings, Montana, some idiot threw a rock through the window of a Jewish family's, you know, picture window. Mm-hmm. They were displaying a menorah. The Billings newspaper printed a big picture of a menorah and thousands of Christian families at Christmas time at Hanukkah displayed in their picture windows a menorah. And those gestures and those possibilities as seemingly far away from us as they do just because of the, the din of our media are still present. Mm-hmm. And what we have to do, as Lincoln said 
best is appeal to those better angels. That's that's all you got to do. Well, that's you have to assume you... that, or at least try to think that most Americans are inherently good and want the same things as we do. But you mentioned Obama before, and listening to what you just said, is there some truth then that his election did usher us into, on some level, a post-racial America? No, no. And 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 what he did was suggest the possibility of a post-racial America. And it was one that almost instantaneously was met with just unbelievable op opposition by too many forces. And too many forces that if, if he had been white, would not have been vociferous or have been so underhanded as to play a race card with regard to him. People who just say we're opposed to an economic policy, we're happy to, you know, jump on the back of the people who were saying the the really horrible things. And and you know, he got Secret Service protection earlier than any candidate in the history of of running for president. And he needed it. And the threat level throughout his two terms was off the charts. And so I think what you have then, and then what, what happens is that you have Donald Trump come in who just, just because he's an opportunist decides to pursue as he pursues many things, you know, throwing anything against the wall to see if it sticks, the birther thing that actually gets some traction and it gets some reaction. And then you have the candidacy of Donald Trump, who is essentially saying, let us open Pandora's box. Let me be the irrepressible id that permits you to say all of those things, that decorum and reasonableness and that sense of, of, of us being a polity that is together. Yeah, and, and so what you have are just the, the fractured stuff. And the fear of him is so great, as you are in authoritarian regimes. And you see this in the lack of courage of other Republicans who know better, who know better. And then... Unfortunately, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, you see that that also spawns so many other people who are reeling to parrot exactly what he's doing mm -hmm. uh, in ways that 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 threaten us as well. Is he and more? Just, is he more or less dangerous, in your opinion, than he was years ago? I think he's less dangerous. Just the 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 twenty election, uh, you know, sort of proves that. And I think he's got you know, some very serious legal challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, uh, I think at some point you don't just want to win the Republican primary. You want to win the general election and you can do it in a lot of states. And the way the electoral co college is set up, it, it makes it closer than it actually was. Whenever I think of Trump, I always have to think like I'm in his head, not mine, because that means I leave logic, rational thinking, critical thought behind. So in his mind, is he actually, is his game plan, is his long game to become president, not by winning, but when he loses again, to your point about the general, because now there's some levers of government that were changed, like in Georgia, that might, now that he's learned from what didn't happen in 2020, have they changed things to the point where he thinks this time post-election, even if I lose, I could become president. Is that his game plan? I don't know. I, I think there is 
more intelligence and more logic and more cunning in it. I thought, I thought what his niece's book, what, which was like, I think too much and never enough mm -hmm. it is a really good insight. I think it is so moment to moment that it's just, you know, in our action pictures, it's somebody running away from the apocalypse and each step they step on dissolves the second they mm -hmm. step up the next one. And I think a lot of it is just staying cleverly, uh, one step ahead of, of, of forces, mm -hmm. you know, and I think there's a, an enormous amount of chutzpah there, um, mm -hmm. to, to do that. But, uh, you know, I, I just wish there was some coherent policy rather than just throwing you know, crumbs to, and not so much crumbs because of the judiciary, you know, throwing, saying yes to stuff that he doesn't believe in, you know, mm -hmm. you know, we know, we, we know him from New York, mm -hmm. you know, we know, know what he, what he believes in, which is whatever is good for him at that moment. So it sounds like you think he's pretty much going to get the nomination that, that seems. I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know. It really remains to be seen. I think right now. Yeah. And that, that, you know, I don't think that bodes well for the Republican Party. You want to have a Republican Party that represents some values that aren't just the extreme values, you know, you with regard to guns, with regard to a woman's right to choose, with regard to foreign policy, with regard to, I mean, let's, with the, you know, it's like Casablanca, you know, what the, our two lives don't amount to, you know, an anthill compared to, so, I mean, Ukraine to me is like, that's, that's it. You know, you can prevail in Ukraine and then there's, there's a real sense of possibility or at least being able to change the dynamic. Is there anyone in the Republican side that you feel has the gravitas, the courage, the fortitude, whatever, pick your word, to take him on and succeed? No, no. I think all of those people have realized the calculus of the primary system is such that the people who had that aren't going to do that or have already left the Republican party. David Jolly, the congressman mm -hmm. from Florida, it's incredibly articulate about it. You know, uh, Charlie Sykes, the journalist, they're Republicans, they're conservatives, and they realize the extent that there's not a single profile in courage here, mm. you know, not a single profile in courage. I think uh, I, I like making predictions. I'm almost always wrong, but that doesn't stop me but it's, it's fun to do it. And I have this, lately I've started to think that the one person who we're all talking about now that doesn't stand a chance in hell, Mike Pence, is somehow going to wade through this muck. He's eventually going to full turn on Trump because you're starting to see that pivot. He was the vice president. He is the true man of faith, if you believe in that kind of faith stuff. And given Trump's problems and uh, what we can agree is a very difficult road ahead of him, legally at least, it seems likely that the person that people could quickly turn to is Mike Pence. And I'm wondering, like, is he really a coward and feckless, or is there actually some genius at work right here that he is just waiting and biding his time and right place, right time, right guy? I think that's, you've gotten inside his head. I think that's what he would want to believe, that there is a path in that regard. I don't really see that in that way. You know, he, he represents, I think 
Trump picked him because he represented what was that side of the Republican Party, the, the combination of, of fiscal and social stuff that, that he thought would appeal to big donors, I think particularly uh, Charles Koch. And Koch had already seen who Donald Trump was. So yeah. I, I don't think it released Koch money, but Pence, Pence has something uh, that is just his... It means you, what you see is what you get. Mm. You know, it's sort of like Joe Biden. And so you, I, I mean, I'm not ru ruling out your speculation, but I, I don't think that given where things are right now and given Pence's position in the drama of January 6th, that, you know, what it, he'd have to slay, he'd have to testify mm -hmm. and the testimony would have to be so damning that it would it would require the special prosecutor in, in at DOJ Jack Smith to indict on a lot of different things, and then he'd have to fall. You'd have to have res the resentment disappear, mm -hmm. right? It's like Hale Dorothy, the Wicked Witch is dead, and all of the minions that are protecting the Wicked Witch are now suddenly instantaneously the spell is broken. This is this is. This is, requires a lot of certain things to happen, mm -hmm. right? Well, that's true. And there's an awful lot of time between now and politics and a year or a year and a half is, is an eternity in politics. Eternity. But I, yeah. you know, one of the things that I think has taught me, it, it, that I've seen in the last seven, eight years, is that conventional wisdom doesn't work anymore. Everything that we've seen has utterly defied conventional wisdom. So the conventional wisdom today would be, Ah, there's no way Don uh, Mike Pence is gonna be. The yeah, nominee. no, 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 no. I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I like you know, a year of, and a half from now, or whatever, I could be looking sitting here looking golden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you may be too. I mean, I my my biggest thing is after I make a film, I work really hard to just tell the story, but mm -hmm. I lift up and realize the way in which it's resonating, echoing in the present. And so I would have a stump speech that would be for years. You know, started with the Civil War. What if I told you I'd been working on a film about this, this, about this, this? So. In, in a film I released in the fall of 17, so Donald Trump has been in office for, you know, eight or nine months, whatever it is. I said, what if I told you I'd been working for 10 and a half years about mass demonstrations taking place across the country against the current administration, about a White House in disarray, obsessed with leaks, about a president sure the press was out to get him, about asymmetrical warfare that confounded the mighty might of the American military about huge, big document drops of stolen classified material that destabilized a presidential election and accusations that a political party reached out to a foreign power to affect a national election. You'd say, I've been talking about what's been going on for the last year and a half in, in the United States. But all of those things were true in December of 2006 when I decided to do a film on the history of the Vietnam War. Mm. And all of them were true when we locked the picture in December of 2015 to allow us to do a long 10, 10 episodes, 18 hours of post-production, a month before the Iowa caucuses, out of which no one thought Donald Trump would emerge. Mm. So you're absolutely right. So the, you know, the Ecclesiastes says what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun that suggests that human nature doesn't change. And so it superimposes itself on the random stuff of events. And that's what makes the storytelling part of this mm -hmm. rather 
the statistical stuff or the binary stuff, um, much more important to try to understand and come to terms with. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's still no them. There's still no them. There's mm -hmm. only us. And, you know, eugenics, uh, we learned in our Holocaust thing was this pseudoscience invented to try to suggest that there might be a hierarchy of races, of ethnicities, even of nationalities, when of course there's only one race and that's the human race mm -hmm. and period, full stop, nothing else. Yeah. You know? Well, let's shift to your career. I want to talk to you about that. And this is a, a good segue, but I do want to say the Justins would be a great name for a future Ken Burns documentary. I'm just throwing it out there, you know, or, 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 or no Justin, no peace. You can go with either one. No, no Justin's plural, <laughs> yeah. plural, no peace. I, I just, to me, like I just suddenly came to me the other day and then I suddenly, the next day thinking I was of course genius, <laughs> saw that there were six signs that said at least no Justin, no peace in, in Nashville around the, uh, the, the, uh, city council and then around the state house. Mm -hmm. So when I look at your career, I kind of equate it to music, okay? And as a huge Beatles fan, to me, there's the Beatles and then there's everybody else. And right. so when it comes to documentaries, similarly, there's Ken Burns and then there's everybody else. So what I want to know is, what makes oh, that's you... so unfair. I'll answer your question. No, and that's so not, unfair. wait, wait, wait. That's not denigrating others because I love the Rolling Stones, but they are not the Me Beatles, too. okay? No, they are not, not the Beatles. They're not the Beatles. And, and I know a lot of documentarians. I made a documentary, which by the way is, to, I have one documentary I made. So for me talking to you right now is like a, a little eager talking to Babe Ruth. But so what the point I'm making though is that you have elevated to a level so far beyond what any documentarian could ever aspire to. And what is that secret sauce? What is it about your films? What is it about you? I mean, you came out in 77 with the, the Brooklyn Bridge and your first film, and it was nominated for Best Documentary Academy Award. Talk about like, where do I go from here? I would love for you to get in your own headspace. What makes you Ken Burns slash the Beatles when it comes to documentaries. <laughs> and you could pick your Beatle. You could be John, you could be Paul, you could be- oh, John, 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 John. You know, I'm a huge Beatle fan too. I mean, they are really the sun and the moon and the stars uh, for me as well. And so what you said, Andy, I just take as the highest compliment. It's just, it's not true. There's so many different areas of documentary that they just don't overlap. They're apples and oranges. And so it's not just a Rolling Stones. I like them too, but they're, people that are doing classical and there's people who are doing rap and there are people who are doing soul and there are people doing R&B and, and you can't, you know, a convenience and commerce often in silos music into different things. We learned in country music, all of the great, the guys that on Mount Rushmore all had African-American mentors. So that was an, an important part of, of, of what we learned in that story that we couldn't just sort of conveniently sort of describe it as one thing. I started Brooklyn Bridge in 77. I finished it in 81. And I think a lot of it has to do with just perseverance. I, I used to keep on my desk two three ring binders, each of them, you know, four inches wide with all the rejections. I looked about 12 when I was trying to raise money and they would say, oh, this child is trying to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge. No, 
And I was looking for a thousand bucks or 1500 or 2,500. I mean, you know, that, that was it. And I just kept going. And I think people with a lot more talent, I just knew that I had, I learned early on to tragedy, the death of my mom and my father's inability to respond to it, except at a movie where he cried that I wanted to be a filmmaker. That meant being John Ford or Howard Holmes, Alfred Hitchcock. Then I went to Hampshire College, which totally rearranged all of my molecules. My teachers were social documentary, still photographers who did some documentary work. And they reminded me that there is as much drama in what is this moment here and what was what we might call history as anything the human imagination could make up. And they were right. And I'm suddenly by 18 years old, 12, I'm a filmmaker for life, 18, I'm a documentary filmmaker. And by the end of Hampshire, I'm making a film on history, which completely on the last course I took, the only course I took in history in college was Russian history. So, I mean, I loved it and I knew it and I wanted to know more about it, but it just, I was so lucky that all these things came together. And then when I was living in New York city and I'd shot in the spring and the early summer of 79, like 70% of what we were going to do for the film. And then I realized I needed a real job because I couldn't exist on the grant money. And I, I didn't have a real job. And I, in my fifth floor walk up in Chelsea was going from 275 a month to 325 a month. And I, there was no way I could afford that. And I got offered a really high paying job, like 800 bucks a week. And I like looked at the footage on the refrigerator and I just said, oh God, if I just blink and take it, I'll wake up and I'll be 45 years old and I'll have not finished the film. And so I moved to rural New Hampshire to the house I'm still living in, hmm. which was 275 a month with more closet space than, than, than actual uh, floor space of this walk up and, and just sort of learned how to do this. And then people, I used to say, oh, that's the best decision I ever made moving to New Hampshire. Best decision I ever made was staying because as you said, that film was nominated for an Academy Award and everybody said, now oh, you're moving back to New York, going to move to LA. And I said, no, I'm going to stay here. And I still live there and, and make all the films from there. And that is a huge part of it. It doesn't seem like the right answer you want to hear. There's no secret sauce. It's just a, a concern that the work we do is so labor intensive that you want to be able to, you know, I've got in my editing room, a neon sign. And it says it's complicated. And there, as you know, there's not a filmmaker on earth that when you've got a scene that's working, you don't want to touch it, right? Mm -hmm. You just don't, you just want to leave it alone. Like that don't, that works. Let's just fix the other places that don't work. But we often learn such new and contradictory and oppositional information that we have to deconstruct even the best scenes and maybe end up having them be less than what they were, but closer to the approximation. And then mm -hmm the way we handle music and the we is not a royal we it's like this is a collaborative as you know it's a collaborative thing you just you you work with dedicated people historians advisors writers editors co-producers people all you know come in i get credit and blame you know the blame is deserved the credit is not because it should be shared but then you just work on stuff and it has a complexity that's able to be what I was, we were talking about at the beginning, like a, a true story that isn't just binary. And, and I, there's a huge honorable tradition of documentaries that are advocating things in the moment about what's going on. 
And we're not doing that. We have obviously subtle stuff and themes that, that we're, we're engaging, but it seems to be safely in the past. But I've also had to be escorted by Alabama state troopers out of a church, a church in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama, because the members of the audience in a church didn't like the way the civil war turned out and decided to blame the messenger. Right. And, you know, that tells you that, you know, as safe as that you think that past is, it's not past. <laughs> Faulkner said that, you know, that history is not was, but is, you know, and so. But, but your films, some, you, you, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish. No, 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 I, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I'm just sort of spinning tired because I, I don't know what to say. I'm. But your films be have been lauded for, for everything from the unique editing style, the narration, the music, the vision, all of it together. There is something to be said about the technique that you bring that has been not just lauded, but copied. And I think that's what people talk about when they say that there's Ken Burns and then there's a lot of other people that do very great work, but it's it's still in a different category. You mentioned so let team. me add. So let me, I've added biography as a reason, like tragedy, the the tenure illness of my mom and her death when I was 11, my father's own stuff and his inability to cry at her illness or her death or her funeral, which was very sad, but able to cry at an old movie by Sir Carol Reed called uh, Odd Man Out with James Mason about the Irish troubles of the 19-teens and 20s. And that prompted me at Hampshire College and particularly Jerome Liebling and Elaine Mays, two mentors there. I think the moving to New Hampshire was a huge part of the isolation, but the, a, a real central uh, character in this is public television, right? Like mm -hmm. I, every film, and there, I think they're, they say 40, I, I never stopped to count them, uh, that they broadcast. They're all my director's cuts, right? They're not, I, I don't have a complaint. Well, they wouldn't let me use this. I've raised the money. And so we go and get the music for the Vietnam. We got the Beatles. We went first to the Beatles. <laughs> And got a most favored nations from them. And then mm -hmm. we're able to go down the line to the stones to buy, you know, and, 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 and get the music we want, the soundtrack of that age, which would not have, it wouldn't have been as good a thing if you'd had a kind of, you know, kind of faux rock soundtrack wall to wall carpeting. We had all right. the spectacular tapestries of the music of that period, not just rock, but folk country and jazz and, and, and other things, classical, of course, and then Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did this stuff. So there are all these things. But the thing is, is that, you know, it's really hard to raise all the money, Andy. You know, I mean, like the Vietnam thing was 30 million bucks. And it just like I was raising money till the, up to the before, after we locked, I was raising money still, right? I could walk into with half of what your kind words about me to any premium cable or any streaming service and get that 30 million in a, in a pitch, but they wouldn't give me 10 and a half years. They wouldn't give me 10 and a right. half years. The PBS, that's not a factor with them. And so I would say that this, this network, which is huge. I mean, it's like the fifth or sixth largest network there. It's not this tiny little, Oh, you know, the broccoli that's good for you, the castor oil, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge presence, media presence, and it reaches, you know, 98% of all households, it, it set a pick for me. It uh, permitted me to do these things at their own time so that, 
you know, I can say, if you don't like any one of my films, it's all my fault, you know, because I don't have that excuse that even A-list director friends of mine in Hollywood who say, well, you know, if I'd had, they'd let me use this person as an actor. She was the one I wanted, but they said, no, for this acting part, you need this person or allow me to do this music for you out of money or couldn't do this scene. I'm going, you know, you just wait and raise the money to, to figure out how to do it. You know, and so I think a lot of it has just been keeping, I'm a dull boy, you know, I work all the time. You know, it was hard to get this time together, right? Because we're working right. all the time. I work with amazing people, writer Jeffrey Ward and Dayton Duncan, amazing writers, uh, Sarah Burns, my oldest daughter and her husband, David McMahon, amazing writers and producers and directors, others like Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein who are in just, uh, you know, Buddy Squires, who was my assistant at Hampshire and is now like one of the world's great cinematographers. Mm -hmm. Do you tend to work we've with the just, same DPs and editors and, and the, the team? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we've grown people up too, so that, you know, one of my senior editors right now came as an intern. My senior editor wow. came as an intern in the early 80s, like 18, 17 years old, who was taking a course at, at NYU where my editor was teaching a night course. And so, you know, she came and now she runs the the whole, she's the senior editor. Mm -hmm. And Trisha Reedy is her name. She's just a phenomenal editor. Eric Ewer is another editor, you know, came as an intern as well. So we've grown people up, but we also kept, kept the same people and there's no yelling. <laughs> and he, nobody yells. I hear too many stories about filmmakers yell and we don't yell. I'm not sure you can yell in brain surgery either. It's just yeah. like, it's just, we're making documentary films. So we're trying to do a good job and trying to speak to as many people as possible. And I think that's another thing to add to the list of, of stuff, which is that too often the films are, 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 are horrific and they end up with an audience of people that already agree. Mm -hmm. And I'm very happy to be in a network that reaches people who don't necessarily agree or can have their minds changed by those stories. You know, it is Richard Powers, the novelist who said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And how do you change minds? You don't do it in a conscious way. You tell a story and maybe it does nothing for you. Maybe it changes you fundamentally. Maybe it changes you at the edges. And that's all you can ask for. So when the film's done, it's not there is an evangelical period where I like to go out and help promote it, but it, it's not telling you how to feel. It's just mm -hmm. saying, this is what we felt about this. We didn't know going in what it was. We're not telling you what we already know and already arrived at stuff, which the last time I checked is homework. The We're sharing with you our process of discovery. And that may be, maybe in the end, that trumps all the other things mm -hmm. that we do. It just want to say, hey, you will believe this thing right mm -hmm. about whatever it might be the civil war or jazz or baseball or vietnam or the u.s and the holocaust or brooklyn bridge you know i still i walk when i'm in the city i get over the brooklyn bridge usually every day at least once and um you I, feel like it's your I, bridge I, like, this is my bridge i got nominated no, I that, for this bridge <laughs> i i felt that once and it was way back when would you remember when soapy's choice came out uh -huh. right i'd film had been out that was sort of like the mid 80s or you know and Brooklyn Bridge was 81, 82. And I went to a screening by myself with Sophie Choice. And I had no idea. I'd read the book, right? You know, and they have this scene where they're on the bridge. I just 
burst out in tears because it, at that point I was thinking that's my bridge in a good way. It was like I was sharing, but now I walk over it and I watch people being transformed. I mean, this is performance art, right? It's just the oldest piece of performance art in the city. And it's just a magnificent work of art, which Roebling knew he was going to make. It wasn't just going to be uh, this practical thing. I mean, the, the form follows the function. It did what it's supposed to do, as Arthur Miller said in our film, but he really made this work of art. And as Arthur said, it says it maybe it makes you think that maybe you too could add something that would last. It would be beautiful. That's the last mm. word of that my first film. And that's 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 like that's that's the statement of purpose. It's like you watch these people now, there's Hispanic and Asian weddings predominantly, some Eastern European. They're there in freezing cold and the hot days and they're getting pictures taken or they're proposing, they're getting down. People are going, when I walk, since I do it so often, when I'm in the city, I see people and I wave to the same people who are at the same time walking in the opposite direction across the bridge. And there's a kinship that, that comes from that. And I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to film a conversation with somebody or somebody's going to film a conversation with me and talking about the bridge. And so I, I don't own it anymore. I, I felt that I did in that one moment watching Sophie's Choice just because it was such mm. an emotional feeling like, yes, somebody else understood how how incredibly central that, that bridge is to all of our feelings and affections. It's just such a great work of art, which you don't really expect to come across in something that's just trying to get you from the bedroom community of Brooklyn to Manhattan and back again. And then it's going to not only do that, it's going to unite the city. Right, because once you've got that bridge, all of a sudden, you've now got. It's not that much longer. It's 1883. It's dedicated, and then the city comes together in '98, and so all get unified. New York was just the the island of Manhattan, mm -hmm. and now it's all all five boroughs, and it's the bridge that is the is the merrier of them all. Yeah, I I know we have just a few minutes left, so I have two. Two things I want to talk to you about, your process and your influences and what's shaped you as a filmmaker. You talked about your mom dying, which is a subject that I, I know about. Uh, raised yep. a child whose mother died when she was three. When asked about, would you ever make a film about her? You basically said no, but because all my films yeah. are about her. Explain yeah. that. No, no, no. She's here right now. You know, her name was Lila, L-Y-L-A. She got cancer when I was two or three years old. There wasn't a moment when I didn't feel like this gigantic sword of Damocles was going to drop mm. on our heads. Poor family. We just struggled and struggled and struggled and she passed away. I told, I was told when I was seven, she was going to die in six months. She told me she was going to live till junior high, which to me felt like it was a thousand years away and she missed it by a few months. After she died, my father had this stiff curfew, but he, he forgave it and gave me this movie education that was so amazing. And that's where I saw him cry. But he also, you know, I, I began to realize that I was not all through my childhood and then teenage and then adulthood. I could remember the day, April 28th, that she died. I could see it coming and then it receding. I was never present for the day. And my late father-in-law, I finally said, I seem to be keeping my mother alive. And she said, yeah, I bet you as a kid, you blew out the candles on your birthday cake, wishing she would come back. And I said, how'd you know? He goes, that's the magical thinking of this kind of person. Mm. Lost somebody that has meaning to them. And he said, and look what you do for a living. I said, what? He said, you wake the dead. You make 
Jackie Robinson and Abraham Lincoln come alive? Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? And so my conversation, and it sounds like dime store psychology, but it was from an eminent psychologist, so it's no longer dime store. Quarter store. It, it, suddenly, it, it's right, at least, or half dollar store. He, he, he actually touched on something, and it was by then I was 30, 39, and so I was well advanced into my professional life. But it changed things. I've never not forgotten it. It's often twice a day early in the morning and in the late afternoon that I see 428 April to on thing and I speak to her. My oldest daughter named her. I mean, her name, Lila, was draped in black crepe all my life. We mm. said we barely could say it. It was mommy or mama, whatever it was. And and my oldest daughter named her first child uh, Lila, L-Y-L-A. And so all of a sudden, birds chirp and flowers bloom and it's, it's got, it's got new connotations. And so she's always present. There's not a film that isn't about her because I'm interested not in excavating the dry dates and facts of the past. I'm interested in an emotional archeology span that will touch on higher emotions, not nostalgia, not sentimentality. They're the enemies of good anything, mm. but some higher emotions that are things that you've touched and you've touched in having to negotiate the story of your tragedy and more importantly the story of your daughter's tragedy that that are are about that like none of us get out of here alive and so what do you do we could it'd be reasonable to assume the human beings could lie on the floor in the fetal position and do nothing but we don't right we write studies we make cures for diseases we raise children with love we tend gardens you know holy toledo what a great story stop the presses right you know Whitney calls it the wolf at the door, meaning, you know, none of us are getting out of here alive, right? None of us, none of us, no excuse is going to be made. Mm -hmm. And yet so many of us, so much of the human project is about that, that hope that I hope that somebody asked me, what's the common ingredient? I, yeah, we know, Ken, it's all American history. Now we're doing a film on Leonardo, so it's not all American history, but I, I just say love. It's the most difficult four-letter word to actually say and, and understand and come to terms with, but, but it is. And it's love of mother. It's love of family. It's love of, of all of the things. It's the sadness at loss. All of those things activate parts in all of us. And so, you know, people say that we make, you know, we kill people well. That's what they say in our films. You know, when then Abraham Lincoln dies, I cried. Or Jackie Robinson died, I cried. Or Jackie Robinson died in his solo film, I cried. Or Louis Armstrong died, or whatever it might be. And that has to do with tr truly trying to tap the higher emotions that are really, you know, when we say something is greater than the sum of its parts, if the sum of the parts are down here and this is what it is, what's the difference? We never ask ourselves, what is the difference? And I believe it's the higher emotions. It propels art. It propels love and our relationships. It propels our faith. If we have it, 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 it even animates the humanities and reason and science, you know, it's the God factor, you know, in all of these things. And so, you know, if there's a secret sauce, it might just be trying to be attuned to some, uh, to, to be attuned to that emotional yeah. You and I once spoke and I had asked you about how do you make films that are so diverse in the subject matter? And your answer really shocked me. Yeah. It's the same film over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who are we? Who are we? Mm -hmm. That's the only question that I've asked in every film. Who are we? And you get back each project sounds, you know, it's like sonar. You get back all sorts of things. At the same time, you get back the same message, right? And it's very, very complex. 
has to do with race, has to do with freedom, has to do with excellence and innovation, hard times and war. It just has to do with bottom up as well as top down. It has to do with the, the particular and the macro, you know, the, the architecture of the atom is very similar to the architecture of the solar system. Let's go with that. You know, what does that mean? You know, how, how is it that, that, you know, Blake said the, the romantic uh, English poet said you could find the world in a grain of sand. Mm. That's so the pro the projects may seem diverse and specific, but, but it's the world you're looking for. Right. Well, you've been so generous with your time. I literally could sit here for the next 10 hours, which means we're both going to have to find the time. Then it'd be like again. a Ken Burns documentary for crying out loud. Yeah. Well, maybe we just, you know, do podcast the movie where you and I just talk. That's like right. Fran right. Lebowitz. Or Andy Mark. Warhol sleep. <laughs> Right. <laughs> My dinner with Ken, you know, like we can go on and on, but I would love to have you back at some point. I know you're a busy guy, It'd but be great. there's so much to talk about the business of documentaries that we didn't have enough time to get into. But I wanted my listeners to get a, a sense of who you are, what motivates you, what inspires you. And I think we've given them that today, but there's so much more to you as a person, as a filmmaker. And so I do hope you'll come back at some point. Love to, my friend. Thank you. Alrighty. Thank you. Take care. That's episode 63. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Osprey. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Ken Burns. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.